friends, we've been in the book of Revelation, just the first three chapters, and, and what we've seen is Jesus has given a message to, to the Apostle John, who is, uh, he, was, he was put on the Isle of Patmos as, uh, as retributive punishment for preaching the name of Jesus. The government put him, dumped him there and, and said, because you have preached the name of Jesus, you are not welcome in the rest of Rome. And from there, Jesus shows up, meets with John, and through his angel gives him a message to seven, the seven churches. What would it be like to have a letter written from Jesus to the branch? Dear branch, I know your works. What would he say about us? It would be cool, though, wouldn't it? It would, it, would be, it, would be, it would be pretty awesome to say to Jesus that knows us, that he says his preferred place uh, is among his people and his church, and he dwells with his church through his word. And what would he say about us? So we've seen that he's uh, from the Isle of Patmos. The letter's been sent to Ephesus, and, and then it's been, I'm going to mess this up now. <laughs> it's been sent to Ephesus and then uh, up to uh, Smyrna, and Thyatira, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now it's, now it's down in, in Sardis, which is inland of the Aegean Sea. And this letter has messages to each of these churches. And now the message comes to Sardis. What was he going to say to Sardis? When I was... Uh, Bridget and I were engaged in 1997, and uh, that's fine, laugh it up, it's okay, it's all right. Uh, I lived in Orange County, California, and she lived in Washington State while she was planning for the wedding. And uh, one night, my friend dropped me off at John Wayne Airport in Santa Ana, California, in my 1988 silver Chevy Corsica. Now, the car... You know, it wasn't cool, but it, it was, it was, it ran well and it was great. Uh, he dropped me off, and while I was in Washington, little did I know that was the last time I would see that car. Because my friend, driving that car after I left, totaled it. Nice friend, right? If you're listening to this, Tad, thanks a lot. And he totaled it, leaving me $1,800 to buy a new car. He left me $1,800 and a lot of regret that I left him my keys. Now, $1,800, even in 1997, was not very much money to buy a car. And so the car that I ended up getting was a neon blue Honda Civic hatchback, lowered with rims, a loud muffler, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a boom box that sometimes worked. Now, uh... Another name for this car was a lemon, a hunk of junk. <laughs> it looked cool to a 19-year-old kid, you know, living in the 90s. But underneath the car, under the hood, it was a heap. It was a piece of trash that didn't last very long. Uh, and I eventually sold to someone else, telling them that it was a heap, I promise. But in reality, you know, the reality was different than the reputation. At least I thought it looked cool. It was a cool car to have as a 19-year-old. But the reality of it was different than the reputation. If I had taken it to a mechanic, the mechanic would have said, do not be fooled by the looks. What's underneath is not good. 
and it's about to die unless you perform radical maintenance on it. The reality was different than the reputation. You know, friends, that is also the case in some Christians and in some churches. The reality is different than the reputation. You know, sometimes the reputation of a Christian does not align with the reality of their life. Has anyone ever known a Christian like that? Has anyone ever been a Christian like that? The same could be true of a church, a group of Christians. Sometimes the reality of a church's life does not match its reputation. It's known for one thing, but the reality is different. So here's a question I want us to answer. As a Christian and as a church, what does a church, what does a Christian do when their reputation, when its reputation and reality do not align? What are we supposed to do? When a church or a Christian is known for being alive, but is dead. And you heard uh, Audrey read that for us this morning. That's exactly the, what's going on at the church of Sardis. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, right, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. You have a name for being. So what are we supposed to do? What's a, what's a church, what's a Christian supposed to do when they have a, a reputation that's alive, but they're actually dead? Well, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, who writes to an embattled church, a church in tribulation and suffering, the message is of an exalted Christ with a heavenly perspective. He has a God's eye view. He knows, he not only knows what your reputation is, he knows what the reality is. And who better to diagnose someone's spiritual state than Jesus, the great physician? And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna go in the doctor's office and we're gonna get diagnosed by the great physician. And he's gonna give us a prognosis, a prescription, and a prize. What are you supposed to do when your reputation does not align with the reality? Well, you go to the great physician and you get a prognosis, a prescription, and then a prize. So, in verse one, what's the prognosis? The prognosis of, of this church is that is sort is it's similar to the one at Ephesus, the first church he he wrote to. That was the church that was doctrinally sound and precise and and rigid, but they had no love. It's he actually opens with the same kinds of words. This is the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works, you are, and they're not to be commended. You're known, you have a name for being alive, but you're dead. And here, the all-powerful, great physician, Jesus Christ, says, I know your works, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna give you a diagnosis here. And in, in, verse, in verse one of chapter three, the, it is the words of him who has the seven spirits. That is to say, he has the, the fullness of the Spirit of God. This fullness of the Spirit of God who sees into the spiritual state of, uh, of men and women and churches. He sees what's actually going on in your heart, regardless of the name you have or reputation you have. He sees, and he's all-powerful. He holds the seven stars. He has infinite power to convict of sin and, and a hollow profession. He has the full spirit of God, and he holds the seven stars, and he's able to see behind the facade you are putting up. He says to this church, 
that Sardis. He doesn't say it to every church, but to this church. And we need to consider, what is, he, what is he saying to us as a church? What is he saying to us as Christians? Are we just play acting? Are we just being those kind of Christians that, that put up a good show, but in reality, our hearts are dead? Like the Pharisees, they're whited sepulchers. The tomb on the outside is beautiful and clean, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. And this is the prognosis. You have a reputation, you have a name for being alive, but are dead. We, we don't know exactly what their uh, reputation was for. Uh, maybe they had a lot going on. Maybe they were active in their community or, or doing uh, many Bible studies or uh, they were active. They had a lot of programs. Maybe they had a lot of members. We don't know, but it says you have, a, you have a name for being alive. And the worldly diagnosis was that they were alive, but the heavenly prognosis was they were dead spiritual deadness. So what does a church do when it has been pronounced dead by the great physician? What do you think of yourself? What if you have gone to the doctor and, you know, most, most of us are, are younger here um, and we think we're in really good shape, but what if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, and you expect the doctor to say, hey, you know, you, you look good, everything's fine, but actually the doctor says, look, you're, you're not in good shape. You have, you know, you're, you have 50% blockage in your arteries. You're about to die. What, what would you do? And maybe this is you. You've been playing at the Christian life, but in actuality, Jesus is confronting you this morning and saying, you're, you actually are dead. Well, he has a prescription for, for those that he calls dead. He has a name for being alive, but are actually dead. And his prescription is to wake up. Wake up. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Verse two. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. It's a wake-up call. You go to the doctor, you, you, you find that you have 50% blockage in your heart. What are you going to do? If you don't get serious about it, you, you will die. The first thing to do about this condition is to believe the doctor. Wake up. This is serious. Your condition, even your condition has made you sleepy and and foggy, but this is your wake-up call. Jesus is saying to you right now, wake up. It's a slap in the face. Wake up. Your condition is fatal. And their condition was that their works were not complete in the sight of God. This is, this, is, this is what was going on. They, they, they had a, a reputation, a name for being alive and, and active, and they were doing a lot, but they were dead because their works were not complete in the sight of God. They started things they didn't finish. I don't mean your project in the backyard. I, I, don't, I don't mean the, you know, the thing that your wife has been begging you to do for a very long time. I don't mean that. I mean they started things in the Christian life, in the church, with other people that they didn't finish. They began good works, but got distracted. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like when you're reading an article and there's, there's links inside the article and before you know it, uh, you wonder what you even got on the computer for. Is that just me or is that you too? Okay, thank you. <laughs> me and Trent, we're, we're like soulmates here. And he calls them to wake up, stop being distracted, finish the article, finish what you started, wake up. 
you're dead. And secondly, he calls them not to just wake up, right? Waking up is not enough. He also calls them to remember. This is a very important part. Nancy Guthrie says, they are called to a spiritual strength training. You know, if if you have a heart that has 50% blockage in it, I guarantee that you, the doctor is going to put you on a regimen. Right? I, there's some doctors in the house, and, and they're not heart doctors, but I, I'm pretty sure that they're going to put you on a regimen which involves nasty food, I mean healthy food, uh, exercise, and medication, right? They're, they're, you are going to have to do some strength training, right? Get in the gym, and, and let's unblock these arteries. I don't even know if that's how it works, but we're just going to go with it, Okay. Exercise, And so Jesus is putting them, their prescription is to wake up, get in the gym, spiritual exercise. And their spiritual exercise is to remember. Remember what you have received and heard. Get into the gym and, and start lifting weights. And spiritually, that means remembering. There's lots of ways to do that. That's one of the things you're doing right now, this morning as a Christian. You're coming so you remember the gospel. The week before, you know, last week, there were so many times where we, where we forgot and we got distracted and, and, and we're getting back into the gym and we're exercising, we're remembering. We take the Lord's table to remember. We, we read the Bible. We meditate on the Bible. We memorize the Bible so we can remember. Because friends, there are times in your life that are gonna be, they're gonna be dark. You may... Maybe some of you will never experience depression, but if you do experience depression, or voices in your head tell you that you're not worthy of God's love, that he hates you, that you could never be a son or a daughter of God, you are going to need to remember in those moments to say, no, that is not true. It doesn't matter how I feel, it doesn't matter the voices in my head, the spiritual exercise of remembrance is going to be key in those times in your life. What are you going to have to say when you're there? When everything, your feelings and your emotions and your circumstances all tell you you're not loved by God, what are you going to remember? He's, telling, he's, he's calling them to, to remember, to call to mind the apostolic teaching of the, of the apostles and prophets, the truth passed on by the prophets and the apostles of old in the holy scriptures to remember. Remembering is a covenant word. It's a, it's a word of promise. It's, it's something that the Lord does, that, that the saints of old have called the Lord to do. Please remember me. And the Lord remembers and calls to mind and he, he hears his people in Exodus and then he calls them out because he remembers his promise. And he's asking you to remember, to be involved in the covenant, to read, to meditate, to memorize the scripture. This is the regimen. This is the spiritual exercise he's calling you to. And you say, seriously, remember, that's what I was supposed to do. So this is the spiritual strength training. You know, it's like, it's like going into the gym. Some, some of us need to be told what to do in the gym. You need to be reminded, no, you're, you're lifting wrong. Like, if you do it that way, you're going to get hurt. And you have to remember how to lift. You have to remember how to do these things. That, 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 is, that is what he's calling us to do, is to remember. Remembering is hard. 
Remember, doing the exercises correctly is hard. That's why we need other people. That's why we need each other to speak into each other's lives and community group and one-to-one Bible studies and, and, and group studies and, and church on, on Sunday mornings and, and all kinds of other things we need to remember. Remembering is an important part of it, but it's not the only part of it. It's called, called the wake up, remember. And then third, we are called to the, the spiritual strength training is to keep it. Not only remember God's words, but to keep Jesus' teaching. One of the reasons Sardis was in a mess, and maybe one of the reasons we are in a mess, because we have not kept God's words. They were like the, the man or woman who gets up in the morning and, and looks in the mirror and goes away without fixing themselves up. Look in the mirror, they're a mess. They have food in their teeth, and their hair's a mess, and they have bad breath, and they walk away. It was even worse than that, actually. They were, they, were, they were fooled to thinking they were okay. They were more like Instagram influencers who take pictures next to cars that aren't theirs, right? Or rent condos to do a photo shoot. But in actuality, in reality, that's just a reputation. It's just a name. They live in a normal house just like you and me. Their reputation does not fit their reality. And Jesus is saying, in order to get those to line up, you have to remember God's word and keep it. Remember the words and keep them. There's an important thing we must remember also is that as we are remembering God's words, as we look in the mirror and, and we see that something's wrong, we try to fix them, we don't take off the mirror to try to fix them, right? Has anyone ever looked in a mirror, saw their hair was a mess, took the mirror off and tried to fix it, their hair with the mirror as a comb, right? The, the law cannot fix our mess, right? The Bible cannot, you know, the, God's laws cannot fix our, 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 our hair. It's like taking the mirror off to do it. Only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who has kept that law perfectly can do that. And so we look to him. We look to the one who has fully kept it. And then we say, man, I, I want to keep that too. I, I want my reputation to line up with reality. And thankfully, the word next, that we wake up, we remember, we keep the law, we also repent, fourthly. We repent. What if you forget or you don't keep the words? You repent. You, you turn. Now, I'm so glad for this word because we can think we just need to start living a holy life and that will fix everything and, and, and God will be, you know, God will be appeased and will be, will be brought back and, and everything will be fine if we just live a holy life. But he's saying, no, repent for not keeping them. You know, repentance is, is like following your, your GPS. Sometimes you, you pass the turn, right? You, you pass the turn and what does the GPS say? You know, ahead, make a... A U-turn, yeah, you almost said it. Yeah, make a U-turn. That, that's it, repent. Turn back, turn, turn to God. Turn from going the way that's gonna lead to destruction and turn to Jesus. That, that's it. U-turn, U-turn. He's calling us to do that in the Christian life. We, we do that as we enter the Christian life. We, we trust and turn. We, we repent and believe Jesus alone. And then in the Christian life, we continually trust, turn, and trust. We keep making U-turns. We must wake up and repent. 
turned to God because we've not kept the law. We failed to remember and keep it. So thank you, Jesus. He says, repent. And so you wake up to this reality. You keep on repenting. This is the strength training cycle. Wake up. Remember. Keep it. Repent. Repeat the cycle. Wake up. Remember. Keep it. Repent. Repeat the cycle until you are finished, until God calls you home and glorifies you. If you want a reputation and reality to align, turn to God. Turn to God. And the motivation for this we see in verse 3. The motivation we see for this is remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The Lord is, is coming against all of those who, who live a hypocritical life without repenting. He is against those people, and he is going to come. Now, we're not sure if this is the final second coming, where Jesus comes and he rewards those who have believed in him, and he punishes those forever who had not believed in him. We don't know if that's it, or this is just a special coming to this church that he's going to deal with them. We're not sure, but the second coming is a motivation for this strength cycle, for this strength training, to turning, to our reputation and reality lining up. He, he says, I, I am coming. And if you don't turn, I, I'm against you. Special coming. It's a motivation to keep your eyes on the prize, to keep your eyes on Jesus, to, to remember and repent. Friends, this doesn't only have to be a fearful motivation. You know, it's, it's not like Jesus is just saying, uh, you better get it together or else. I mean, he is saying that, but he's not just saying that. He's saying, listen, Turn to me because I love you. I want what's good for you. I want what's right for you. But this can also be a good motivator, right? Jesus is coming. He's coming again. And, and what will I do? Will, will, will he receive me or not? And, and he gives you the path to being received by him, and that is turn to him in repentance. You know, this can also be a good motivator. If, if I'm at home before my wife and I want to do something, you know, nice for her before she comes home. Now, I could either, I could either think, man, if I don't get the dishes done before she comes home, she's going to be so mad at me. If, you know, if I don't clean up, if I, you know, if I'm, uh, if I'm playing video, I mean, it's not even true because I don't play video games. Like if I, if I'm, uh, if I'm watching ESPN, you know, before she comes home and the house is a mess, like she's going to be mad at me. That's true. That's one motivation for getting it clean. But there's another motivation. It's, it's out of love for her. It's out of wanting to make her happy and please her and, and, and her to, to, to think, oh, wow, my, my husband really loves me and cares about me. Uh, that's, that's the sort of thing we can also think of when Jesus, in Jesus' coming. It doesn't just have to be fearful. It can also be, I want to please him when he comes. When he comes again in the clouds, I want him to be, I want him to be happy. Sort of like, I want my wife to be happy when she comes home because I really love her, not because I'm afraid of her. Does that make sense? Okay, should I go over it again or? Okay, all right. Uh, so, so here it is. This is the motivation is that Jesus is coming. And that can be a fearful motivation for some of us. 
but what he says is turn to him, and it doesn't have to be fearful. You, you can want to see, you can want to welcome his coming. This is the, the story, this is the way the story's ending up, that Jesus is coming again, and we get to see him. And because of the work that he has done on the cross and resurrection and ascension, he will be pleased with us as we try to please him. And last, what's the, what's the prize? What's the payoff for this spiritual exercise, for getting our reputation and our reality aligned? Verses four through six. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers, the one who is victorious, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. No, I will, in fact, confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, here are some examples of people that have done what Jesus has asked them to do. They've, they haven't soiled their garments. They haven't stained them with, the, with the, uh, having a name but are really dead, having a reputation but not the reality. Here are, here are some who have not stained themselves in, the, in this world. They haven't, they haven't dirtied their white garments, the garments that Jesus has given them. Here, here are some examples of those who will get the prize. And there are some of them in Sardis. There, there are some of them right there in that church, in the church at Sardis and in Turkey, who, who will walk with Jesus in white because they are worthy. Here's some examples of, of them. Those saints who are not perfect, but are trusting in Jesus, leaning on Jesus, just like some of you. Your examples, uh, you're, you're those who line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace as we, as we walk along together. Those who have not stained their garments. It's not that they have never sinned. It's, it's not that at all. It's that they keep looking to Jesus. They're involved in the strength training. They keep repenting. They keep turning because they want to please him because he has done so much for them. And as they, as John goes on, he says, in this motivation, he keeps having it, it's the, it's the same framework as the other letters, right? The one who conquers. It's this encouragement to persevere to the end, to endure to the end with, with patience and holiness. And he tells them, the one who conquers, just like those examples, those ones in Sardis who haven't stained their garments, if they continue on, they will be conquerors. If they persevere to the end, they too will be clothed in white. If your reputation and reality uh, line up, if, if, you are, if you are willing to confess Jesus with your, with your mouth to other people, even at the cost of your own life, you will be clothed thus in white garments. How did their garments, how did, how did they keep their garments white? How did their garments get white? In Revelation 7, verses 13 through 14, John tells us, Jesus tells us how their garments are white. You turn a, a few pages over, he, he says, you know, the question is, who are the 144,000? And he says, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's these. It's actually a, a, a number of people that 
from every tribe and tongue and nation with the loud voice who have been saved by God's salvation. In verse 13 and 14, he says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, out of, out of tribulation, the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. My friends, how does blood make something white? Have you ever thought about that? How does blood make something white? Well, this is an image. It's cinematic for us. It's meant to explain to us that the blood, the death of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, is what made the garments white. They're garments that were stained and, and filthy with sin. All, all of us, there's, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of us have had our garments stained filthy with sin. And the only way to get them white is through the blood of the lamb. It's through washing the garments in the blood of the lamb that makes them white. The death of Jesus, actually because of his life, his perfect life that he lived, he earned garments of pure white. So that when anyone who believes in him and trusts in him, repents and turns from their sin, bows before Jesus and, and, and says, my garments are filthy, I have nothing to bring you, nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. Jesus exchanges his robes of white for your garments of filth. That's what he did on the cross, dear friends. It's called the great exchange. He took your death, your sin, your penalty, God's wrath on himself and said, here's my garments of pure white for you. That's how your robes can be made white. So those who conquer, conquer by the blood of the lamb. They don't conquer by their own holiness, they conquer by Jesus' holiness. And he says he will never blot their names out. He will, he will never, it's, he will never do it. He wants to assure the sinner who has put his trust in Jesus, whose name is written in the book of life before the world began, it is not possible that he will judge those whose names are in the book. And you might say, how do I know that? How can I know that for sure? I, I'm still a sinner, I'm not sure that he could still love me. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote a book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And in it, he has a section on a, a verse in John, John 6, 37, says, that says, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and the ones who come to me I will in no wise cast out. And for you who say, I, I don't know if, if he can love me, he's saying, I will never blot you out of the book of life. And John Bunyan riffs on this verse, and he says, but you say, but I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise 
cast out, says Christ. But I'm a black backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. And that's what he would assure you of, dear Christian, if you have put your hope in him and your name is written in the book of life, he will never blot your name out of the book of life, ever. He won't do it. I will in no wise cast out. Because Christ's work is perfect. It's complete. It's wanting nothing. It's only for your good. And if you will confess the name of the Lord Jesus, he says that he will confess your name to his Father. Why can he in no wise cast out? Because he's done the work and he's going to confess your name to his Father and the angels. He will in no wise cast out. Friends, the prognosis is awful. The reputation doesn't always align with reality. The prescription is spiritual strength training. Friends, but the prize is Christ himself. He will in no wise cast you out. He will, in fact, confess your name to his Father and to the angels. Well, won't you turn to him today? Won't you, will you trust him? You, you who are, are weary of your own sin, who are not quite sure if God can love you, won't you look to him who loves you, who proved it by going all the way to the cross and the grave and rising again from the dead? He proclaims you not guilty if you will trust in him and him alone. If you have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in your kindness, you would remind us of your love for us. You, you would remind those of us who are not sure that at the last day you would really confess us as your own. You would remind us that because of the work of Christ, you will do that. Those who are suspicious of your love, God, help us to remember that you will in no wise cast out. And we pray for those of us who are hypocritical and our, our reputation does not align with reality, that your very love would change our minds. It would wake us up, call us to remember, call us to repent and turn to you and keep your words. God, we even ask as we, as we look at your body and your blood in communion and the Lord's table, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would commune with us as we commune with you and each other. You would unite our hearts to praise your name and to love you. 
I ask that you would do all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.